0: hello and welcome to the permaculture podcast with scott mann a listener supported program my guests for this episode are violet brill and her father Wildman steve brill violet and steve are foragers from new york violet assists her father on his plant tours leading groups of people and teaching them about wild edibles Wildman steve in addition to his tours and workshops is also the author of multiple books on foraging including identifying and harvesting edible and medicinal plants in wild and not-so-wild places, the Wild Vegan Cookbook, and foraging with kids. We use beginning foragers, including children, as the focus for this interview. We mostly discuss plants and mushrooms that are easy to identify and do not have any poisonous look similars. We do include an example, which is wild carrot versus poison hemlock, to show that with care and a firm understanding of a plant, you can identify and safely harvest edibles. We must, however, pay attention in order to do so. As this is part of the series on foraging and wild foods, once you've listened to this episode, I recommend going back through the archives and listen to the other shows, including those with Dan DeLion, Sam Thayer, and Arthur Haynes. Together, they will provide you with a well-rounded perspective on how to come to a knowledge of plants in the wild. Now then, on to Violet and Wildman Steve Brill. I'll join you afterwards with some more thoughts and updates. Then, Steve, Violet, can you give us a bit of your backgrounds and biography, how the two of you came to forage together? And then we'll talk about some plants that people can look for and forage in the place where they live.
1: Sure. Well, Violet was foraging long before me, back in ancient Greece. She was uh, a wood nymph, and she was foraging around in the forest there. Zeus, the king of the gods got bored on Mount Olympus and came down to Earth looking for some fun. Uh, He met Violet, and they started partying in the woods. Then he got scared. What if his wife Hera found him partying in the woods with Violet? Zeus, how dare you? If you're married to me, you're not married to her. You've embarrassed me in front of all the other gods and goddesses. I'm not going to forget this if I live forever, and I do live forever. You're going to be washing the dishes for the next million years. If you want to party in the woods, you party with me. So Zeus used his magical powers and turned Violet into a cow. Ooh. He figured his wife would never suspect he was parting in the woods with a cow, uh, sheep maybe, but not is certainly not a cow. Uh, anyway, uh, Zeus went home, and Violet got hungry.
2: Ooh. I want some food.
1: Ooh. She ate the grass. The grass was tough. It hurt her mouth, and she started to cry. Ooh. And Zeus felt sorry for her and turned all her teardrops into violets. And that's the origin of the violet. And uh, since my violet was born, she knows all the plants. So if anyone ever turns her into a cow, she'll know what to eat. So that's uh, that's violets origin. She's 10 years old and she forages with me and co-leads my tours. Uh, I grew up in Queens in New York City. My mother showed me a couple of berries out in the country when I was a kid, and I never forgot how good they were. When I was an adult, I got into uh, health and nutrition, exercise, and um, alternative lifestyle. I was bicycle riding for exercise back in uh, somewhere around 1979, 1980. There were these ethnic Greek women in one of the parks, Collecting something. I'd been experimenting with natural foods in the kitchen, so I stopped and asked them what they were doing. I couldn't understand a word, it was all Greek to me, but I came home with a bag of grape leaves, which I stuffed, and they were absolutely delicious. I started getting what books were available on foraging, uh, most of them written by botanists who didn't forage and didn't cook, so the information was less than perfect. But finding and identifying the plants, making sure I had the right ones, and if you eat the wrong plant, that's the end of you. I started experimenting with the plants in the kitchen, which I'm still doing to this day. Uh, One day I was having so much fun collecting things, I thought other people might be interested in this as well. And I began leading public foraging tours in 1982 and have been doing that ever since. Uh, my big moment came in 1986 when the New York City Parks Department, uh, knowing that I like plants, put two plants on my tour undercover agents, a man and a woman disguised as nature lovers. They said they were married since they never held hands or kissed. I figured they were married for a long time. The man paid me with marked bills. This is in the 80s when there was a crime wave in New York City and uh, people were selling drugs on the benches in Central Park, but they gave me marked bills. uh, And when I ate a dandelion, the male ranger ducked behind a bush, took out a hidden walkie-talkie. All right, there he is on 86th Street. Go okay, get him. Every park ranger in New York City popped out from behind the bushes. They surrounded me in case I was going to climb a tree. They put me in handcuffs lest I bop them on the head with a dandelion. They searched me. I don't know if they're looking for weeds or weed, but they hauled me off to the police station in handcuffs, where I was charged with criminal mischief for removing vegetation from the park they searched my backpack too but fortunately i'd eaten all the evidence then they made a big mistake they issued me a desk appearance warrant that said i had to go to court i could face a year in jail if convicted and they let me go i spent the next uh, day notifying the media newspapers tv shows wire services this is before the internet so everyone watched TV or listened to the radio. The next morning I went to the newsstand to see if I'd gotten any results. Five cops came after me. What do you want? I said, I've eaten a single plant. I haven't eaten the, have breakfast yet. One of the cops says, we don't care. We want your autograph. I was on newspapers, front page. TV shows, everything from CBS Evening News to Letterman. The BBC interviewed me from England.
2: The coronavirus Strike is in its fifth week, and in New York City, they arrested the wild men of Central Park for eating a dandelion.
1: When they uh, took me to court, I served Wild Man's five-barrel salad on the steps of the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse. To passersby and reporters, the press ate it up. I got on all the TV stations and newspapers again, after which the city negotiated with me, dropped the charges and hired me. And I worked as a parks naturalist teaching foraging for the next four years. So that's my background in a nutshell.
0: And then when did you get the nickname of Wild Man? Was that from that event?
1: No, that was when I was first planning... To start teaching foraging the winter of 1981 to 1982. I've been practicing transcendental meditation since the mid 70s. I was meditating. The name just popped into my head and it sounded perfect. Only problem was people on my tours kept saying, "Uh, You know, Brill, you don't look like a wild man. So then I went to the Army Navy store. I bought a pith hat, a pith helmet, an explorer's hat and grew a beard. And now people say, you know, wild man, you look just like I thought you were going to look.
0: To cultivate the image to go with the name? Yes. Now then, with all the foraging that you do, and from some of the material that I've seen, you maintain a vegan diet?
1: Well, I do often eat lamb's quarters, sheep sorrel, cattails, and chicken mushrooms. But outside of that, I'm a vegan.
0: And are you also a vegan, Violet? No. What all do you eat outside of that diet? Oh, you eat
1: cheese.
2: Yeah, I like cheese. Mm.
1: And, and, some oh, some cheese and some seafood. She has some seafood once in a while.
2: And yeah.
0: But not a heavy meat eater like a lot of, the, a lot of children? No. Okay. What's it like growing up eating like that and having a foraged diet?
2: Well, since I've been doing it ever since I was little, well, I'm kind of like, it's kind of like normal for me, but like other people sometimes are like, what, like sometimes I bring like plants and I have them and then they're like, what is that? So it's kind of like unusual for other people, but like normal for me.
0: My children don't eat a lot of normal things like their friends would, a lot of fast foods and things like that. And I know that they get questions about how they eat and what they do. Do you use those opportunities when you have those different things to kind of like share with your friends and teach them what it is that you're eating and about the different plants?
2: We did a tour with my class. Um, We did a tour with my class going around the yard and we were picking things and we were all trying different things that we found.
1: Yeah, and she teaches other kids on the tours, and they're very into it.
0: For someone who's just beginning to make this transition or who is interested in foraging, especially children come to mind, what are some plants that are common to your area that you recommend people start with? What are some things that people could find and begin eating?
2: Um, the violet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, violets are delicious.
2: They're really yummy. The leaves taste kind of like lettuce, and the flowers of them, they like,
1: they like have a texture, yeah, and you like cattails, yeah, cattails
2: and those, are, so those well. are
1: incredible. You peel you peel the stem of the young cattail and the
2: bottom of it, where you could pinch through it with your thumb, you can eat the bottom of it.
1: yeah, it tastes a little like cucumber and zucchini, and um one one of the recipes in my wild vegan cookbook, because it tastes a little like zucchini, you make a French stew that's normally made with zucchini, tomatoes, and eggplant. Uh, You know what that's called? That's ratatouille, but with cattails, it's catatouille. And uh, definitely better making a stew with tail of cat over one made with tail of rat. Uh, The immature green flowers of the cattail, you cook like corn on the cob. They're dry, so they're incredibly good with a sauce. And when the flowers are mature and yellow, you shake them and you get pollen, which you can use in place of flour. So that's an extremely delicious plant. Uh, The roots are edible too, but that's a huge amount of work. I don't uh, usually bother with them.
0: Now, I see a lot of cattails growing in ditches along roadsides and things, but my understanding is that that they're not safe to eat in that environment because of the road pollution?
1: Yeah, you don't want to pick anything near heavy traffic, but they're so common you can go to a wetland that's away from the traffic and find them. Uh, They're actually symbiotic bacteria that live among the roots that detoxify any organic material that goes into the water, and that they're not going to somehow make lead or arsenic vanish, but anything, anything organic, they can get rid of.
0: About a half a mile from my home, there's a large pool of cattails that are probably maybe 25 or 30 feet off the roadside. That might be a place to go look.
1: Yeah, I usually go at least 50 feet away, but you can at least try them. Have you eaten them yet?
0: No, I haven't. I always seem to catch them at the end of the year when they're going kind of like to duff as the heads have turned brown and starting to produce seeds. So I've never harvested any.
1: Yeah, that's way too late. Uh, May is the best time. That's when the flower heads are really big. The uh, stems are really big. The flower heads you uh, usually get in June, but definitely, definitely take, take a look dandelions are great to eat too. You get those when they first come up early in the spring and then new growth comes up late in the fall into the start of the winter uh, before things freeze over. They're really nice in salads mixed with other greens. They have a little bit of a bitterness. Uh, The bitterness of the leaves increases when you cook them because they shrink. and. The bitterness gets concentrated. If you saute them and then add a sauce and cook them in the sauce, the bitterness vanishes. And uh, the flowers, especially when they first appear, are quite good. Violet, why don't you uh, tell uh, Scott what you discovered about the dandelion flowers?
2: Um, I discovered when they first bloom, when they're big and look big and juicy, when they first bloom, the dandelion flowers. You can bite in right to the center of the flower, and you get a burst of nectar.
1: Ooh, Yeah, that is really good. I uh, foraged for three decades and didn't realize that until violet discovered it. There's always new things to learn about the plants. What, what other, what fruits do you like?
2: The Juneberry.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, there is a danger to the Juneberry. What can happen if people eat Juneberries?
2: If you eat the ginger, you can die of happiness.
1: Yeah, they taste so good that it's a big shock to the system. And uh, you could just succumb from joy. Uh, They look a little like blueberries. They grow on bushes. There are some species that are trees, but I don't see those around here. And uh, they have a a sweet flavor that's a combination of apples, blueberries, and almonds. They're also called serviceberry and shadbush because back in the day... Uh, roads were impassable in the winter due to ice, and a lot of religious services were postponed until April, when the uh, beautiful white flowers of the service ferry allowed people to travel to the religious services, which were all then held close to the same time because of the postponement in the winter. And if you went fishing... The shad would migrate in from the ocean at the same time, and they often do grow along rivers and streams, so they're also called shadbush. And uh, in Canada, they're called Saskatoon because uh, they grow in uh, that part of Canada. Have you ever tried any of those?
0: I have not, but there's something that's coming into cultivation here in central Pennsylvania.
1: Okay, they do cultivate them. People who cultivate plants grow them for their appearance, and they do have very beautiful flowers. Uh, that one is on my website, wildmanstevebrill.com. So is the cattail, and so is the violet. Uh, a lot of plants there you can, uh, you can see. And there's nothing poisonous that looks like any of those. If you want something that has a poisonous look alike, uh, you should try foraging for wild carrots. There is a plant called poison hemlock that will stop your brain from communicating with your heart and lungs, so you die of respiratory failure or heart failure.
2: And the very little difference is that the carrot is that the carrot has hairs and the hemlock doesn't.
1: And also, the carrot smells like a carrot very clearly, and the poison hemlock does not. Uh, Anyway, the poison hemlock isn't that bad. There are actually two people who can eat poison hemlock and not be harmed at all. And they're both famous, and they're both friends. Uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, they have no brains and no hearts. Uh, The carrots are very delicious, but they're not for beginning foragers. All you need to do is forget to look closely at the plant uh, to find out whether or not it has hairs, and then forget to smell the root and uh, then you're dead. So you have to be conscientious. And you could go into a supermarket and uh, uh, you're all into going shopping and then you buy cigarettes and those will kill you too.
0: Of all the things that you forage for, I watched the one video that you have as an introduction to foraging and in that you have all kinds of dried materials, all kinds of frozen materials, a lot of stuff in your larder. How much of your diet is foraged for, would you say?
1: At this point, it's about 10%. Uh, I do so many tours, and I'm writing and uh, working on books. I don't forage quite as much as I would like to. But uh, just about every meal has something foraged in it. And Violet and I are going to be making a pizza later. The dough is rising, and we have some wild prince mushrooms that are going to go into that. And uh, that's going to make all the difference. We already made uh, homemade tomato sauce. If there weren't snow on the ground, we would have put some wild greens in the tomato sauce, but we're going to have to wait for that.
0: Now, you mentioned that the wild carrot is not something for a beginner to go after because it's easy not to pay close enough attention.
1: Yeah, some people don't pay attention. You do that when you're driving, the same thing happens.
0: You get a little bit distracted, and you're not paying attention. The next thing you know, you have something in your basket you shouldn't. Right.
1: And again, it's so it's so easy to scratch the carrot and smell it. Does it smell like a carrot? Or does it smell uh, uh, foul and musty? And then the hair is on the on the leaf stalks. Uh, you hold it up to your eye. You see it's hairy. And the poison hemlock, it's not. So uh, the dangers are are there. But if you're conscientious, you're not going to kill yourself. We really only had one uh, one close call on all of uh, on all of my tours there. Um, actually, actually, the person did did finally did finally succumb. Uh, there's a plant that's related to poison hemlock called white snake root, and that has the same effects, depressing the central nervous system. And uh, we were collecting another plant. That, uh, no, it wasn't, I'm sorry, it wasn't white snake root. It was Star of Bethlehem. That one looks like field garlic. Field garlic is in the onion family. And again, it has a very, very strong smell and it has a round leaf. So uh, the poison plant, Star Bethlehem, has a flat leaf like grass with a big white stripe down the middle, and it has no (coughs) smell. Five minutes uh, after I told people the difference of the two plants and to watch out for the poisonous one, someone was putting the poisonous plant into her bag. I stopped her before she could eat any, but the poor woman still succumbed. She died of embarrassment.
0: But embarrassment sounds like one of the lighter things to come to with some of the other plants that are out there. But that was really the only incident that you had?
1: Yeah, people, uh, I'm, we both make sure that people are paying attention and collecting the right things. So in, 20, in 23 years, uh, I'm sorry, 33 years of doing tours, no one has, uh, no one has gotten sick from foraging. And, uh, the biggest danger is poison ivy. There is a lot of that around, but we show people poison ivy right away, and no one even gets a poison ivy rash.
0: Have either of you had any bits of stomach upset or anything from the different foods you foraged?
1: Violet got an upset stomach from uh, giant puffballs, but you uh, eat a small amount the first time of any new mushroom, and uh, then uh, if there's one that disagrees with you, you don't, uh, you don't eat it again. And the same thing happened with me long ago with pawpaw. That's a very delicious fruit. Tastes like a combination of banana and uh, uh, mangoes. And the first time I tried it, I just had a few bites. That's what you're supposed to do with any new food, wild or otherwise. And the next time, I had a few more bites, and it also gave me an upset stomach. So that's uh, that's one I never eat. The worst thing that happened to me is I grew up on junk food. And uh, I'm glad I stopped eating that stuff. There's uh, volumes of scientific uh, evidence that a uh, uh, diet high in white flour, or sugar, or refined carbohydrates, and uh, animal fats, artificial chemicals will shorten your life and put you at much higher risk of all kinds of diseases. I had a lot of early deaths in my in my family. My parents and grandparents generation, uh, uh, cancer and heart disease. Uh, I'm 66. I swim a mile in 41 minutes and, uh, am healthier than, uh, than I was when I was a young man eating junk food.
0: Well, you've been doing this now, as you say, for 33 years and you had an interest in health and diet and exercise when you, about half a lifetime ago at this point for you. Right. How long did it take for you to transition to this kind of a lifestyle?
1: That was slow. I started with uh, cooking, and I think the first thing I did, uh, I started cooking in the, in the mid-70s. And the first, the first change I made was I cut the amount of sugar in half that I was putting into desserts. And then I became a vegan in 1990.
0: And you've been eating like this all your life, Violet?
2: Yeah.
0: If you go to a friend's house and they're eating something like chips or pretzels or that kind of junk food, snack food, do you stay away from it or do you indulge from time to time? Well,
2: I have pretzels and stuff like
1: that. She eats some stuff that is not healthy and a lot of stuff that's healthy. Yeah, I don't think it's good to force, uh, force kids to eat what you want them to eat. I'd rather use the wild carrot than the stick.
0: I'm interested in in knowing more about that, because that's one of the things that I know a lot of parents that when they chose to go with a particular lifestyle choice, they kind of forced it on the rest of their family, you know, their partners and their children. And I'm on, for medical reasons, I'm on a gluten-free, low-fat, high-protein diet. As part of like that transition was trying to find ways that I could eat well for my diet without having to force it upon the rest of my family. And are there certain ways that you eat and certain concessions you make?
1: We cook delicious food together. And uh, when there's food that isn't nutritious and she eats it, uh, she does. She's eating a million times better than I ate when I was a kid. So I don't really see uh, that I have the right to force her. And I I, I don't like that whole tiger mom uh, mentality for raising kids.
0: I imagine then that growing up with foraging, that it also helps to kind of change the approach to what normal eating is, that you always have all this bounty of food around you throughout the year that you can go and pick and eat whenever you're hungry.
1: Right, right. We're always picking and nibbling on something. We do uh, walks together in the woods and uh, whatever we find. uh, In the the middle of the snow we went for a walk in the woods and uh, Violet was eating barberries I don't, really, I don't really care for Japanese barberries, but they're not that bad in the winter and violet they're ones. They're really good. Okay. You like them more than I do. What's your favorite berry after the Juneberry? The um wineberry? No, way, No.
2: Not the wineberry. The
1: lineberry. wild
2: raspberry.
1: Oh, the wild raspberry. Okay. American wild wild raspberry. We don't see those that often around here, but uh, once in a while we find them. Those are Very delicious.
2: Very
1: Yeah, but only a few.
2: Yeah,
1: but still. Or oh, was that the wild raspberry or the purple flowering raspberry? Um. The wild raspberry we found with that uh, when we did the hike with those people that were going to camp out afterwards on the Appalachian Trail. The
2: purple flowering. Oh, the
1: raspberry. purple flowering raspberry. Yeah, those are around. They and they they don't produce huge amounts of food. Uh, that's a raspberry that doesn't have thorns with a mm. very big purple flower. Mm-hmm. And they're in season in the summer. But one of my other favorites is the autumn olive. Have you ever had
0: those? I have not. There's a local park that I want to go into the woods and harvest some because I know that they're kind of endemic there now. But they spray very often, the areas where autumn olives are.
1: Well, take a look at them so you can recognize them. The leaves are silvery underneath, so you can uh, you can spot them even from a distance once you've, once you've looked at them enough and uh, they grow in uh, old depleted sandy fields and they're incredibly delicious once they're ripe. The autumn olive is incredibly nutritious, it's full of vitamin C and it's also loaded with lycopene which is an anti-cancer compound uh, outed, uh, to to uh, help reduce the risk of cancer for people who eat lots of tomatoes but there's way more lycopene in the autumn olives. They have seeds in them, so you cook them with a sweetener and a thickener, and then you strain out the seeds with a food mill. That's a device that's like a bowl with a strainer at the bottom and a crank on the top, and it pushes the fruit through the holes and gets rid of the seeds. If you're a fruit forager, that's a very important device. You get in any hardware store or cookware store to separate the seeds from the fruit. Uh, So use that in in a lot of uh, cooking. Uh, Grapes have seeds. Uh, If you're making grape jam or grape pudding, you want to get rid of the grape seeds too. Same for many other fruits. Uh, the, the blackberries also, if you eat them raw, the seeds don't bother you. But if you cook them and don't remove the seeds, it makes them sort of gritty. Although um, the blackberry, unfortunately, is in decline now. I'm uh, hardly ever seeing blackberries. And in- that's
2: because there's too much competition with the iPhone.
1: Oh, that's good. We do a lot of mushroom foraging, too. Violet, why don't you tell Scott what happened when we were on the way to Inwood Park in September?
2: Okay, so we were going down the street. I was like, oh, look, there's an orange thing over there. And I'm like, hold up, that's a chicken mushroom! And like, there's a chicken mushroom, there's a chicken mushroom, there's a chicken mushroom. And then we turn around and like, oh my God, there's a chicken mushroom. But we were going to a tour so we couldn't get it. And we got, and then when we were going back, we went back to it. And then we got a better look at it. We got out of the car and went to it. It was, it was like, it was, um, it was like a, it was like a two foot tall, 30 pound chicken mushroom, chicken mushroom that I found while driving down the street.
1: Yeah, we harvested about half of it. And I spent uh, the next week making chicken curry, steamed chicken, marinated chicken, baked chicken, chicken soup. We still have a lot of that in the freezer. And, uh, okay, we'll have some for dinner. I can defrost that any time. And then a couple of days later, I did a tour in Westchester with a bunch of chefs. And after the tour, I took them to the uh, same location and they collected the rest of the chicken mushrooms. And it's one of the easiest mushrooms to recognize. First of all, it's a polypore. Polypores are a group of mushrooms that all grow on trees. They all are shaped like shells, not umbrellas. And they all have (coughs) little holes or pores underneath through which the spores are dispersed. Uh, Mushrooms are the fruit of fungi, the fungus grows in a substrate in the ground, in the wood, in your foot, if you have athlete's foot, and gets its food uh, by using chemistry and liberating nutrients from whatever it's growing in, whether it's a a saprophyte living on decaying material, a parasite killing a tree, or a symbiotic organism where it's bringing water and minerals to the tree in exchange for food. But uh, to repeat, they all look like shelves. They have little holes underneath, and um, they grow on wood, living wood or dead wood. In that group, there are uh, some that are very delicious. There are some that are as hard as wood. A few of those you can use medicinally. Um, There are some that are high horrible tasting, and there are some that have no flavor at all that are as tasteless as my jokes, but there are no fleshy polypores that are poisonous. So that's a good group to start with. The chicken mushroom is bright orange on top, underneath, depending on which species, it can be white or orange, and when you break it open, it looks like chicken meat inside and it tastes like chicken only better so any kind of chicken recipe uh you can come up with or find online you can use the chicken mushroom in it it's not as filling as meat so you uh unless you want it as a side dish if you want it as a main course you then include pasta or or grains or legumes in the dish and that will make it filling Uh, it's incredibly good mushroom you do need to get it when it's young if it's uh Uh, break it open and dripping with liquid. It usually comes up about four or five days after very heavy rain, mainly in the fall, but often in the summer too, and occasionally in the spring. If it's very moist inside, you can just saute it, or you can pan-fry it, put a little bit of uh, olive oil in a pan, uh, throw in the chicken mushroom and uh, let it cook without stirring until it's uh, browned underneath, then flip it over and add some lemon juice, uh, salt, a little bit of uh, hot pepper sauce, if you like hot pepper, and brown the other side. And It's ready to go that way. And of course, you can make uh, everything from uh, chicken cacciatori to uh, roasted chicken with that mushroom. And, uh, it's, again, one of the easiest to recognize, one of the largest. Uh, I found one that was 60 pounds and people have found bigger ones and one of the most common and widespread. What are
0: some other mushrooms that you would recommend people start with if they wanted to begin foraging for wild mushrooms?
1: Well, the puff are one of the other easy groups. Those are basically spherical. You uh, cut them open They look like cream cheese inside, or if you're a vegetarian, like tofu, they're undifferentiated. They don't have a stem and cap inside. There are some poisonous mushrooms that look like the smaller puffballs that are... uh, when you cut them open, you can see a stem and a cap that just haven't opened yet. There's one called the giant puffball uh, that's the size of a beach ball. And uh, you have to get them when they're white inside. Once they're full of spores or the spores are starting to form. I uh, got
2: a giant puffball.
1: Yeah, you found. I was
2: going down the street back from the farmer's market, and I saw some. I was going down the street to the farmer's market. I saw something white. I was like, I think that's a puffball. Then we came back, and me and my mom spent the next half hour traveling through the woods, avoiding Poise and Ivy, trying to find our way to the puffball. Well, we passed it, and we finally found a humongous puffball. Yeah. So it was all worth it.
1: That was a very very delicious. <clears throat> Morels which come up in the spring and have uh, pits all over the cap, are another very delicious one that's pretty easy to recognize. They come up in the spring. There's a false morel that comes up in the summer. The true morels are hollow all the way through. The false morels are not. So you do need a little bit of care there. Uh, other polypores are also easy. Again, with the polypores like the chicken mushroom with a shelf appearance growing on wood and the pores underneath, uh, there are no poisonous ones. Uh, There's a black staining polypore, which you can marinate and um, has a very chewy flavor, sort of like ground texture, like ground beef. And you add some Bragg's liquid aminos, which you get in the health food (coughs) store or tamari soy sauce, uh, gives it a really nice uh, meaty flavor. And uh, cook that accordingly. Uh, what other mushrooms do you like, Violet? What the are oysters. some? Oh, oysters. Those are delicious, but those those have gills underneath. They're not for beginners. And uh, for that one, even a very experienced mushroomer got in trouble with that. Uh, there was this guy by the name of Joe. He'd come on a lot of my tours. We've been friends for uh, thirty three years, and. He knew the mushrooms really well. He lives in Connecticut. And one day he was driving down the road in Connecticut in the fall, it had rained a lot, and he suddenly stopped his car. There on a dead tree on the side of the road, uh, in front of a large house on a lawn, were 10 pounds of oyster mushrooms. And Joe said to himself, there must be 10 pounds of oyster mushrooms there. I love oyster mushrooms. They're so good. I wanna have them for dinner. So he stopped his car, he got out of the car, took out a paper bag, took a pocket knife, ran across the lawn, past the house to the dead tree, cut down the mushrooms, and started off to home. Five minutes later, all right, pull over to the side of the road. This is a state police. So Joe pulled over to the side of the road. Uh, yes, officer, is there a problem? There sure is. We just got a call from the warden of the state prison. And he reported someone running across his lawn with a knife. When did you escape from the prison? Why were you trying to kill the warden? We're going to lock you up. You're not going to get away again. No, no, it was me, but it wasn't me. I didn't escape from the prison. I was just trying to pick these mushrooms. Um, So Joe apologized. He showed the cop the driver's license and... The cop let him go. He was very relieved. He went home. He cooked the mushrooms and ate them and felt much, much better. They taste like seafood. <clears throat> it was the same seasonings you use with seafood. and You can make any kind of seafood dish with them. But two weeks later, it rained again. And Joe just happened to be driving down the same road past the same house and stopped his car. There on the same dead tree, on the same lawn were 20 pounds of oyster mushrooms. And Joe said to himself, there must be 20 pounds of oyster mushrooms there. They're so good. I want them for dinner. But I don't want to get arrested. But I want those mushrooms. But I don't want the cops after me. But I'm hungry. What did Joe do that was the smartest thing?
2: He knocked on the door and
1: asked. And who should come out but the warden himself? Yes, sir. Uh, said the warden. What can I do for you? And Joe said, excuse me, I saw all these mushrooms growing on the dead tree on your lawn. I know they're good to eat. Would you mind if I picked some, please? And uh, the warden says, sure, have all the mushrooms you want. As a matter of fact, it was so nice of you to stop, knock on the door and ask permission. You wouldn't believe the nerve of the last guy who found oysters on my tree. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) And to this day, uh, the warden still doesn't know that it was Joe who scared him half to death the first time.
0: Does Joe still harvest those mushrooms?
1: He gets all kinds of mushrooms all the time. Uh, he and his wife, Kathy, are like the resident mushroom experts in the Redding Ridgefield area. They have
2: glass mushrooms. Yeah, mushroom.
1: their whole house is, is full of uh, various mushroom representations. Uh, I have them too, but I make them. I make lifelike like models of wild mushrooms, uh, sculptures made out of a material called Sculpey and painted with acrylic paints. I also do botanical illustrations, which you can see on my website. Uh, And I also have an app, Wild Edibles, that has my artwork, photos, and everything I know about hundreds of plants, uh, including hundreds of recipes.
0: And I have downloaded your app as well as the foraging flashcards right, and found them really useful for some um, the other day when I took my daughter for her eye appointment just to be sitting there um, with my smartphone because of course it's always with me sitting there reviewing plants with her and looking through for some things that we can start to find here in the spring once the snow melts off
1: yeah once that happens of course the dandelions will come up there's a plant called chickweed which is absolutely delicious Uh, Violet do you want to tell uh, Scott about chickweed
2: chickweed is small plant that has and there are types of there are many types of varieties of chickweed chickweed has little tiny hairs growing up its stem and
1: are the leaves alternate <laughs> or opposite okay the leaves the leaves grow in pairs and it grows in uh, in mats it tastes a lot like corn on the cob, and it's absolutely loaded with vitamins. There are more vitamins than a health food store. See, so it's a remarkable corn-like flavor. You put it in salads, you can cook it, you can steam it, you can add it to soups. It's absolutely wonderful. And back in the day, herbalists used chickweed for convalescence. If someone had survived smallpox or typhoid or scarlet fever, they would be very weak and could catch a cold, which could progress to pneumonia and kill them. Uh, So the herbalist gave them chickweed to rebuild their strength. It turns out when you're uh, seriously ill, you deplete all your body's resources, vitamins and minerals that the immune system needs to defend itself against, um, against things that a normal immune system can easily cope with. And the chickweed quickly replaces all of the vitamins and minerals.
0: I have two more questions for you before we draw this interview to a close. One, I was wondering if you could share with us some staple kind of foraged foods, things that would help fill out someone's freezer or shelves to get them through lean times.
1: Well, there are, there are nuts and, and roots. Um, certainly you can fill up uh, shopping bags with black walnuts. Violet's been cracking those open rocks, since she was... Uh, and she I was found two. a
2: ripe black walnut tree in December.
1: Yeah, that was amazing. Not last December, but the previous December. October is the time for black walnuts. But for some reason, it was one tree that had hundreds of walnuts on the ground, in, in December, and they were all still good. Usually the nuts get rotten. They have a husk that covers them. And what you do is you remove the husks and then put the walnuts into a shopping bag, and they basically last forever.
0: But you have to get them out of that husk.
2: You stop on the husk and then get a rock and crack open the shell, and inside there's the nut meat.
1: Yeah, very delicious high in protein high in essential fatty acids filling they take a while to shell if you're at home you can get a special uh, heavy-duty black walnut cracker that cracks them right down the middle and uh, you can have them forever root store really well too one of my favorite roots is burdock root uh, that's a very deep root it comes from Asia it's invasive so you can dig up as much of that as you want without having any impact on the ecosystem Although the root is so uh, deep that often you think there's a hungry Asian person on the other end pulling and digging. There's three things you need to dig up burdock. One, you go after there's been some rain so the soil is moist. Secondly, it's very common. You look for a spot where there's not a lot of rocks in the soil. That's easy to tell. You stick a shovel into the soil and it keeps hitting rocks. That's the wrong place to, to collect. And if it doesn't, you can dig up uh, a shopping bag of black walnuts and maybe, I'm sorry, a burdock in maybe 15 minutes. Uh, the root has sort of a tough texture, so it t- you slice it razor thin if you have a food processor, so you use the thinnest blade. And then you cook it for a full uh, 20 minutes in a soup or stew or steam it. It's... Is related to artichokes and tastes like a combination of artichokes and potatoes. It's filling, it's used as a detoxifying herb in both European and Asian traditional herbal medicine. And unlike other roots, which go out of season in mid spring, this is in season spring, summer, and fall. And it's really all over the place. Uh, The latest thing I did is instead of uh, cooking it in in, uh, moist heat in a soup or stew for 20 minutes to soften it, as I took advantage of the um, uh, initially tough texture, I marinated the burdock in the same combination of seasonings that you use to marinate beef jerky and then I slow baked it in the oven for about an hour and a half, and it came out tasting exactly like jerky, but vegan jerky. Took me only 32 years to discover.
0: And I'm sure there are lots of other wild food discoveries like that ahead of all of us as we continue to do more of this work.
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, We're always learning new things about these plants. And there's one called the the honey locust that has these, uh, it's a tree that in the fall has these long, skinny, brown, twisted, flat pods. You open them up in the fall, and there's a pulp inside. It looks ugly, but it's very delicious. It tastes like a combination of bananas and uh, honey. And what did you discover about those pods? The fast ones on the
2: ground. Fast and squishiest ones are the ones with more pulp.
1: Yeah, those are, those are the best. I use those mainly as a trail nibble. Maybe at some point I'll figure out an efficient way to remove the, the pulp and then use it as a, as a sweetener. They are they're quite delicious. And um, even if something is difficult to deal with, I do a lot of tours with kids. It's so important for kids to learn about nature. I work more with kids than I do with adults. And to break those open and find how good they are, they absolutely love it. And another one, you get honeysuckle. You uh, pull the stamen out of the flower after you pinch the base of the flower, and you get one teeny little drop of the very sweet nectar. And that will keep kids occupied for half an hour if I let them.
0: My cousins and I did lots of that in the hills of West Virginia. We would just stand there over and over again looking for that little sweet drop.
1: Exactly. And there's so there's so much to foraging. Uh, I'm really glad uh, you're doing so many shows about it and sharing this with people. And every forager has their own preferences and their own direction, and they are all good.
0: And that brings me to the last question, which comes from one of my listeners, Dan DeLyon. He was wondering, how has your connection to nature helped your meditation practice?
1: Well, I've been meditating since before I foraged. So um, I guess I'm still alive to meditate, which I would not be if I were uh, living the same lifestyle as my parents and grandparents. So it allows me to do my meditation and be here and be healthy.
0: And then the last question that I'd like to close every interview with, what are your final thoughts, Steve and Violet, for the listeners?
1: I think people should go out and forage, learn things that are easy to recognize really well, and then build up their their knowledge, share it with others, and take care of the habitats where these plants grow and the planet that is supporting them. We need more people doing conservation work, whether they're into teaching like me or into... uh, marches or working with environmental organizations writing letters everyone has uh, something they can do to contribute to make uh, make the world a better place and they need to go with it what do you think people should know violet
2: well i think that people should like should know like to take care of the earth and shouldn't be like littering or that kind of stuff and be happy that they live on the earth um, and we should always do the best we can to help the earth even
0: more that we are. Well, thank you both for that message to end on and thank you for joining me for this interview today. I really enjoyed it and I look forward to sharing it with the world. It's the first time that I've interviewed a father-daughter pair for a show, but I kind of want to do more like this. Thank you both for this experience.
1: Okay, it's been a
0: pleasure. And that was Violet and Wildman Steve Brill. You can find out more about them at wildmanstevebrill.com. Also, if you have an iOS or Android smartphone, check out the Wild Edibles and Foraging Flashcards series of apps. They are reasonably priced ways to begin learning more about wild plants wherever you are, and Wild Edibles in particular is a go-anywhere field guide that you can carry in your pocket. And this interview overall reminds me of the role that a teacher can play in building confidence for a student to explore further. It was a friend of mine who mentioned Steve during a conversation she and I were having about foraging plants. In order to make wild teas as she had taken a class from him. And going on a foraging trip like that can allow you to taste some of these wild foods in a safe way and begin to have an understanding of the plants without just grabbing a field guide and trying to go out and eat. You can get that first experience and then learn and research more before going out solo. You slow down, take a few classes, spend time with your field guides, and then get started on your own. I also like Steve's approach to not forcing Violet to share his diet, but allowing her to explore her options while ensuring that she still eats good, healthy foods along the way. I see this as also extending to the way that we teach children, include them in our activities, but also include ourselves in theirs so that we can encourage and support them to pursue their own interests or help them to find mentors and teachers who can. In this conversation, Steve also provided... Solid, simple encouragement to gradually begin eating this way. This reinforces slow and small solutions in all that we do, from making dietary to landscape changes. Take a few bites of something, see whether you enjoy it, or if it causes a bit of upset, then decide whether or not more is right for you. Finally, there was Steve's story of Joe foraging for mushrooms and the importance of asking if we can harvest something. In a specific sense, that can be by contacting a landowner but also by observing the plants around us and asking ourselves whether or not this is the right environment to harvest them from. If there are only one or two plants, then perhaps we should leave them alone, or if they are rare, encourage growth by dispersing seeds and coming back in later years to see if there is enough to harvest. From a permaculture perspective, one of the reasons that I love foraging as an activity comes from my exploration of the environmental education writers, such as David Orr or David Sobel. They encourage us, to establish a sense of place, a connection to where we live. Rather than teaching children or for that matter adults about the plights of far off places, let's foster an understanding of our own bioregion and of the place that we call home. Foraging is an activity that we engage in actively that gets us out into the world and looking at what grows there. While trying to identify one plant by slowly reading and integrating the information from our field guides, we're likely to begin recognizing other plants be they edible, as well as rare or interesting medicinals. We begin to know, understand, and then care for this space more fully by returning to nature and the wilder world, and in that process begin to rewild and reconnect ourselves. From this conversation, next week will be Peter Michael Bauer of Rewild Portland to discuss rewilding. We touch on not just that topic as the overarching theme, but also on the impacts of civilization and how to prepare for the collapse that we currently inhabit. It's a rather intense but enjoyable interview. And if you haven't already, please join in the Traveling Permaculture Library Project by emailing your name and address to Matt Winters, who is the librarian for that project. You can reach him at librarian at com. By doing so, you can receive a random book related to permaculture, the natural world, and the environment. All I ask is that once you receive the book and read it, email Matt back in order to get information on who to pass it along to, and then mail the book to them. Each book includes a sticker in the front cover with more information to make this process easier. If at any point in your journey I can help you get in touch, call 717-827-6266 or email show at the com. That information is also important because I'm continuing to look for opportunities to take the show on the road and record more live in-person interviews and give workshops on permaculture wherever it is that I travel to. Use that number and address to get in touch with me if you would like to host or have someone in mind who I should get in touch with. If at any point you would like to open up other correspondence, I also like to receive letters in the mail. I have a box that I keep everything in that I receive from listeners. That address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Finally, a few announcements before drawing this episode to a close. This show, as I mentioned in the introduction, is a completely listener-supported podcast, so I need your help to keep the show on the air. The best way to do that right now is through recurring contributions with Patreon. Because this show exists in a digital world, I've reworked the rewards and goals to make them more reasonable and clear, including that in order to make the show a full-time endeavor, I need to raise $2,700 a month and I'd like to reach that goal by June 1st of this year, and currently I'm at $68 a month. So please, sign up if you are able, as all support is now on a monthly rather than a per-episode basis, and you can become a patron for the podcast for as little as $1. allows you to receive episodes early and without commercials. You won't hear announcements like this in the Patreon episodes, or from sponsors should I take any on. You can find out more about that, as well as where I'm at and what my goals are at